Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined by media executive Andrea Fiddler. After her initial plan to become an RAF fighter was scuppered, girls weren't allowed to join at the time, Andrea started her career in the fashion industry, working at the designer label Jaeger. She quickly developed a taste for selling products and moved into advertising, where she started at the agency Still Price Lintas, working with London Buses, BT Cellnet and won the marketing contract for BBC Five Live. Subsequently poached by the BBC, she spent eight successful years in marketing at the broadcaster, overseeing the launch of Radio Five Live, BBC News 24, BBC News Online and BBC Sport. In 2001, she was appointed Managing Director at Capital Radio and oversaw the launch of the national brand. After two years, she took the helm at Magic FM, where she is credited for making the station a market leader. In 2009, she was headhunted to become president of EMI Music UK and Ireland, where she signed artists such as Tiny Temper and Emily Sonday. And today, she is CEO of Centaur Media, where she oversees all of the publisher's iconic brands, including Marketing Week, The Lawyer and Celebrity Intelligence. Andrea, thank you for joining me. Thank you. So let's start at the beginning then. That's quite an interesting and varied career. Uh, Tell us, how did you get into Jaeger? I decided when I was at college, I wanted to learn about general management. Um, I had worked numerous different retailers uh, for work experience and I really enjoyed the basics of selling, of attracting customers into the store through the shop windows, about persuading them and influencing Um, And, um, yeah, I thought learning how to run a proper business, um, having indulged in a history and European literature degree, was a sensible, a very sensible route forward in in, in an area that I thought I would enjoy. Did your degree help you in terms of your studies or was it more that you just, um, you know, got you through the door and then you had to learn as you went? If I'm honest, my degree in history and European literature was a degree that I uh, did because I loved it. And because I'd spent too much time enjoying the extracurricular <laughs> activities at school and I hadn't got the right A-level grades to read law. These things happen. These things happen, indeed. I'm very grateful, in retrospect, that I didn't read law. Um, my parents were less than grateful at the time. But um, I'm, I'm thrilled because otherwise I would have just followed a very traditional path of reading law and becoming a lawyer. Um, and I wouldn't have had the very career that I loved all the way through. How long were you at Jaeger for and did you enjoy it? What did you learn there? I loved it. I wanted to go to either Jaeger or Marks & Spencers. At the time, both of those retailers were renowned for having the best graduate management trainee schemes. They were comprehensive and the, the real joy of the Jaeger management scheme was that it in, was integrated within Coates Viella and that talked about the weaves, the, the, the whole process of from a thread right the way up to the selling of a suit um, and the importance of materials, the importance of the fashions, uh, but linking in with everything that Coates Viola stood for. So um, I was thrilled to be one of very few people that were chosen. Um, it was a one, uh, one and a half year course integrated with on shop floor experience. And then I became a, um, a regional managing director and worked my way up through lots of different departments. And then you moved into advertising. Tell us about how that move took place. What happened? What I learnt in retail was the importance of influencing people, um, the importance of influencing your consumer, your customer to purchase and to make them feel good, importantly, about that purchase. Uh, But also the importance of galvanising a team, 
mostly of middle-aged women um, <laughs> in uh, Jaeger and persuading them that they really did want to sell, persuading them to take a real pride in their, um, in their work. And m- a lot of them were there for the joy of being out of the home and were not there to earn money or to mm-hmm. develop careers. So influencing them became, uh, was a key part of being a manager. And what I uh, enjoyed doing at Jaeger and where I found I was drifting and leaning more and more towards was the power of influencing more people, getting people to respect the brand that maybe weren't tempted by the brand. So it was the more of the marketing elements. Uh, to be honest, I wasn't looking to leave Jaeger. Uh, I was actually poached by Gucci to go and work with them. So I, with a sad heart, left Jaeger and so went to Gucci at wow. a very early age. Unfortunately for me, I took three weeks off in between two, went to visit my boyfriend in the States to find he was cheating on me. And when I returned, the Gucci job had been rescinded. The uh, Disaster on two fronts. Disaster on two fronts. It was a very good learning experience. It forced me to think about what next. It was a bit like not getting the A-level results that Mm. your parents might have hoped you might. Um, And it forced me to really think about what I wanted to do. And that was the first time I really acknowledged I'm, I am leaning towards more of the marketing of retail at that stage rather than the shop floor management. Mm. Um, I looked at working either in a marketing department of a big FMCG business and decided working in an advertising agency was ideal to learn more about the full integration of all of the different elements, but also work on multiple different clients and mm. learn more because you're having to deal with different clients. So at Still Price Lintas, the difference of working on Domestos, Surf, Impulse, Body Spray and the London Buses campaign and what was then BT Cellnet, mm. where the, you had huge big boxes for mobile phones and them. promoting what what was very new technology at the time was... Uh, a range of different techniques, talking to multiple different audiences in lots of different ways that really helped the foundations of, I think, probably success later on in life. Some people like to work agency side and other people like to work in-house. And I suppose within the advantage of in-house is you get the depth, you get one client, as it were, your employer. But I think you're like me, that you like the variety of the different challenges and the different people and the different brands. Is that something that excited you, the sheer variety of it? It is, uh, and it's still true now. Um, I like the variety of different audiences. Um, Different audiences require different types of campaigns, different types of campaigns, particularly with the way technology develops and the multiple different media opportunities you have now, enable you to be really innovative. So, yes, it's something that I liked then. It's something that I still like now, that multiple approach. And how did you get the job? Because clearly you were between jobs at that point then when you'd returned back from America, heartbroken as it were. Did you kind of send off a load of speculative applications? How did you actually get the job? Uh, Yeah, well, Jaeger took me back immediately. Oh, that was... So you obviously did a good job there then. Jaeger took me back immediately and said, work on a very short notice period until you've worked out what you want to do. But work out what you want to do in the next six months because we're not going to hang around for you forever. Ah, that was kind. And gave me the responsibility of graduate training while I was there. And I did. I went and I met as many people as I could. I met as many advertising agencies as I could. I met as many marketeers in big organisations as I could. And it was a process of elimination, really. And I, I chose Still Price Lintas 
because of its diversity. And it was going through massive change itself because it was a small, boutique, hothouse, very, very successful creative agency at, that had merged with a the Unilever's International Advertising Services. So it in itself was a transformation and I wouldn't get locked into a particular year group um, like I might have done if I'd joined one of the traditional agencies like JWT or McCann Erickson. Was there a lot of politics associated with a merger like that? Because you get two two big organisations and there tends to be a lot of entrenched interests, ways of working, and there can be a bit of a culture class, can't they? I was so focused on proving that I could be the best account manager ever. I don't think I noticed the politics. There probably were Head politics. Down, get the job done. I just I worked to somebody one of the people I worked to was a gentleman named Ben Langdon. Ben Langdon, Mark Lund, Adam Morgan, Richard Heitner are still gods in the advertising world. Ben Langdon was a particularly scary god um, and ruled and scared people, caused some people to have a few nervous breakdowns. And I was determined to outwit Ben Langdon and survive. And thank God for him, because I think it put me on a fast track. So how long were you in the advertising um, space before you eventually moved to the BBC? I loved working at Still Press Lintas. Um, there was a surprisingly slow turnover of staff. It was a team that really gelled. We were flying and um, that success meant people stayed. Um, so I wasn't looking to leave. We had uh, one. I really enjoyed new business um, and I've been working in the new business team. Um, we won Radio 5 Live. We then won Radio 4. And I wasn't looking to jump ship and then the opportunity arose. But I was thrilled to be able to take an opportunity that I thought was fantastic. I'd loved working on Radio 5 Live. Again, for me, it was an underdog. No one expected it to survive. Even the BBC internally, the Radio 4 team and the Radio Sport team didn't really want Radio 5 Live to succeed. I I like working for challenger businesses, businesses that really Mm. need to... um, are the underdog and want to prove something. And that, I guess, was the first taste of that. So clearly you'd worked on Five Live within the agency, but what was it like to move in-house to actually be part of Five Live? Yeah, poacher turn gamekeeper or gamekeeper turn poacher. I'm not sure which way round it was. Well, it was a learning experience for me. I became a catalyst for change without realising the importance of the role. So the role's importance, really, for Five Live was to be an omnipresent force for change. I don't think I realised that much until a number of years later, but that's how it worked. It was less the actual physical function of it Mm because that could have been done out of house. It was a fantastic role, which, to be honest, the biggest challenge was learning how to say no to your colleagues that you'd previously been working for only a month earlier on the other side. Of course. And did they take it personally or did they did they just treat you as a client at that point from then on? From that moment on, I was client. I think I was client, actually, from the five minutes after I'd handed my notice in when they, they knew that I was the client for the future. And what was your biggest challenge at Five Live? Because clearly it was new. Was John Burt the DG at the time? Yes, was John it- Burt was the DG. Jenny Abramsky was leading the charge on Radio Five Live. Liz Forgan was running radio. And what was your job in a nutshell? What was what were you there to deliver? I was there to enable the producers and the broadcasters to really create a different product. I'm very proud of Five Live. Mm. It still delivers news and sport from a well-informed friend, which was our original proposition. 
And that tone is different to Radio 4. It's different to what became TalkSport. It's different to what commercial radio produce. And that was really, really critical. And my role was to ensure that the presenters and the producers and the broadcasters all realised we were trying to create something new and something different. So how did you find that people were, like the listening public, were they initially sceptical of Five Live? Or what was your biggest challenge in terms of marketing it? The biggest challenge was, one, not losing the sports audience. Mm. The biggest challenge was more internal than external because the consumer will always give things a chance. Actually, the journalists at the BBC that didn't want it to succeed were more anti uh, and more difficult to manage. Do you think that's just a culture thing within big organisations generally in terms of they don't like change? They want to, Anyone who's a change maker, anyone who challenges the culture or launches a new product, a new way of doing things, is inevitably going to be met with resistance maybe? At the time, the BBC was going through a massive amount of change and John Burt was leading and enabling the BBC to set itself up for what has been a very successful, uh, what what became a very successful period. Mm. Um, So I think there were challenges because the whole world, when, when I moved into BBC News under Tony Hall, Tony Hall was absolutely committed to ensuring that all journalists, all producers... One, recognised they were part of BBC News and they weren't just part of lots of individual programme teams. They were a news gathering. The fiefdom mentality is still there, isn't it, a little bit? But also that they really thought about the audience that they were broadcasting or presenting to and they just didn't speak in one voice and one tone. Um, And that was a major change for the BBC. It's a public service ethos, really, is trying to you know spread the message of that news and make it as accessible as possible to the widest number of people. And I think... Back then, it wasn't a public service ethos that Mm. they really understood. It wasn't embedded in the culture like it is now. They've done, it may have taken them a long time, but they have got that um, ethos absolutely embedded. And they, they, I think, excel in that in many ways now. Tell us about how your time at Five Live came to an end then. How does it work internally at the BBC in terms of being climbing the greasy pole, as it were? You clearly got a promotion to BBC News. How did that work? I was working with a team of people and Five Live was a success. I don't think it's um, a surprise if you work in any organisation and you're associated with success. Tony Hall, John Burt wanted BBC News to benefit from more than just PR. The BBC News team had traditionally had news PR and people that managed communications They hadn't had marketing. They hadn't had audience insight, research, analysis and um, the skill of marketing within news before. And I think they took what had happened on Five Live. There were a lot of people that liked that success. I was given an opportunity uh, which I took advantage of. And what was that opportunity then? Well, the promotion ensured that I... um, looked after other launches, so BBC News Online, News 24. So a conveyor belt of Challenger Brands then, as you like. A conveyor belt of Challenger (laughs) Brands, just like I like. But also, and importantly, I worked with Richard Deverell, who was the director of news strategy at the time on programme strategy review. Mm. And that was absolutely about how do we take our content skills but reach much broader audiences? What do we need to do to engage with a much broader audience than the BBC News traditionally had done. And then you moved to BBC Sport again and uh, yet another promotion? Yes, I'm not sure it was seen as a promotion initially. It was a by you or by it then. was a real challenge. I was on maternity leave. 
and um, the Channel 4 team had very successfully been wooing the ECB cricket rights holders and it was only when the BBC had turned up to write their next cheque for the next few years that they realised the threat that they were under from a commercial competitive com- uh, broadcaster. The way they worked with sports holders, sports rights holders, needed to change. They really needed to understand the challenges and in order to think through what those audience challenges were for each sports rights owner. So... Um, I was called at home and asked to come in and help them pitch for the ECB rights. We did a fantastic presentation. BBC Sport pulled its finger out and we absolutely wowed and surprised the ECB team. But as Lord McLaurin said to me at the time, it was a fantastic presentation and there's a fantastic new team that you're promising will work on this. But we don't know you and Channel 4 have been wooing us for 18 months. And it was a really marked turning point for Mm -hmm. the BBC because from that moment on, they knew they needed to work with the rights owners in a very different way. To earn it rather than just expect it. Agreed. And that's why I never went back to BBC News. From that moment on, I was asked to work in BBC Sport in business development and marketing. How many years were you there in total? Um, Seven, seven and a bit. It never felt that long. Because uh, I kept getting being moved on for another new challenge <laughs> to get on with. But then um, the, the headhunters called me through. The BBC um, uh, supported me through acquiring an MBA while I was at the BBC. And I was really keen to demonstrate general management. And the BBC supported um, when I went to Greg and said, I've been offered this role at Capital Radio. And Greg was fantastic. He said, I don't have a role that will satisfy your commercial needs. The, the the fact that you need to prove yourself commercially at the moment. I don't have a role that's like that. Go, go and do it and the BBC will grab you back. Did you let it become known in the marketplace that you were available at that point or did the headhunters call just come out of the blue? Headhunters call came out of the blue. I was, again, I wasn't expecting, I wasn't looking to go anywhere. Headhunters call came out of the blue and um, actually Capital Radio, what an exciting opportunity. So, yeah, I took advantage of another door that opened and um, walked into Capital Radio. Uh, but this a was time. a new job because you were the managing director. Yeah, so that was, the, that was the change for me. You were the boss. I had been a catalyst for change and a, and a, a supporter for the directors at the BBC in each of the different um, genres. And at Capital Radio, I was the boss. Um, and I learnt the importance of... The being the boss, the importance of how you greet the security guard in the morning, mm-hmm. um, the responsibility that comes with being the boss. Lots of the functions are exactly the same, but there is a responsibility that comes with that title that you don't necessarily appreciate until you've lived it. Yeah, leadership's something you have to learn by doing, really, isn't it? Yes, I think you're probably right. And you were there for two years, weren't you? Uh, just two and a half years, yes. What happened? Uh, everything <laughs> happened in that if two I can and a half years. put it as politely as that. The Queen Mother died. Yeah. Uh, the dot-com bubble burst. We took the local capital radio station and made it a national trade network. In two and a half years, we achieved a massive amount. And there were a number of different challenges there. I chose to leave at a time that we were, I was at odds 
with the senior management about the direction the station should go in. Um, I didn't believe radio stations could change their strategies or their approach every month. Radio doesn't work like that. You can't build up a listenership. You can't build up a, a loyal following. And I felt um, I felt compromised. Um, so, yeah, um, so I left after two and a half years. But that's quite an ethical way to behave, isn't it? Because lots of people will have a mortgage to pay. You know, their bosses would say, get this done, and lots of people would then just get it done because that's what their paymasters say. But I think yours was quite a brave choice to say, actually, I don't believe in this and I'm not going to do it. Yeah, um, I may have been slightly idealistic. Um, I gave myself six months where I decided to try and bite my tongue. But I learnt a lot about myself, and I'm not a very good leader when I don't believe in something. Mm. I'm a good leader when I understand the direction we're going in, and I will fight for my teams. But if the direction is continually changing, and I don't believe it's necessarily changing for the right reasons, I'm not sure I'm the right leader. And uh, so I felt, actually, they would do better by having somebody else in place that could deliver the strategy they wanted uh, more effectively. So after you left Capital, there was no immediate job to go to. Were you were you kind of unemployed at that point? I was unemployed. The phone stopped ringing for a moment. It was the biggest shock. Wow. When you've been looking after a thousand people up and down the country Doing with presenters projects. continually having um, crisis that they needed you to manage personally. Um, suddenly the phone didn't ring all day and all night. And I thought, wow, how fantastic. And I had become very um, sceptical about whether broadcasting could be true to a consumer proposition and be commercial and be on the stock market. So um, I was looking for something completely different. And I explored um, working for an entrepreneurial, very small startup team, whilst I was also looking to potentially go into to do, run a charity and a year later decided neither of those were perfect for me and went and joined DeFord um, at uh, what was EMAP at the time to run Magic, which I believed was an absolute sleeping giant and which we proved had mass magnificent potential in uh, quite a short space of time. It's a great brand. It is now. When I first walked in, everyone thought I was crazy. Um, they couldn't understand why on earth I would walk into a rejected down rate, um, as, that, as far as they could see it, down market, pile them high, stack them cheap type of um, station. But I thought it had real potential. Mm. Um, and um, we did a number of things very quickly, um, but all of those things were to improve the product for the audience. And that then enabled me to change the commercial model, which made it a very different premium model. We reduced the amount of advertising inventory within each day and each week and each hour, and that enabled us to really change the dynamics. When you started at Magic, it was your first day. You had to roll your sleeves up and get on with it. What was your first priority there? Was that set for you by the who'd hired you, the person who'd hired you, or was that something that you kind of realised yourself and then set yourself these tasks? There was no direction that was laid out for me. So that's um, great, a great kind of opportunity for you to set your own brief. I believe... Normally, the ideas are with the team. They just have got so used to being bashed down or they're worn out or they don't realise they have the answers to some of the problems. So I approach most new roles by listening, by giving myself time to not make any decisions, but to sit and to listen to what 
everybody on the team that normally loves their jobs, but what their frustrations are, why can't they do certain things, what are the problems, what are the hurdles? And then you pull them all together and say, okay, so what do we all believe is the opportunity and the potential? And feedback some of their own questions and feedback some of their own wishes. And nine times out of ten, it's the teams on the ground that have the answers to the problems. It's not the newcomer. The newcomer can just unlock them. It's quite a refreshing way to manage, though, because a lot of kind of top-down management imposes these diktats on their staff saying, you must do this. But yours is clearly a kind of listening style where you're saying that these guys who are actually in the thick of it know the answers because they're living it, and I'm going to listen to them and and empower them. Yeah, uh, it's a tried-and-tested formula that works for me. It worked at Magic. It worked at EMI um, in a very significant way. It is definitely working and has um, proved to work in the last 12 months at Centaur. So I, I do believe listening is important. You do need, as a leader, to set a vision. I, I believe setting the, the vision and the story, so the story is really clear about how we're going to get to that vision and make that a reality, is a vital ingredient. But by listening, you can work out what that vision might be. There are lots of organisations that complain that the decisions taken at the top never reach the ground floor. They Mm. never actually get embedded. And if you don't listen to the people on the ground, if you don't listen to their leaders, then you'll never connect. You'll never create a vision that people believe is possible. And therefore, it might sit in the boardroom, but it won't ever really embrace the whole organisation. And I believe that's a really important part of leadership. And it's something that worked at Magic, it worked at EMI, and it works now. I do believe leadership has to take decisions because frequently it's not the idea, it's taking the decision and potentially taking a risk and backing people and backing the company so that they're allowed to take that risk. That's what the senior managers need to do. Tell us about how you came on to leave Magic and went on to EMI. I got promoted at from Magic um, to work across national radio. And when EMAP was put up for sale and the Bowers bought the business, Mm. I was promoted onto the executive board as the CMO across both magazines and radio. I'd done a number of cross-promotion initiatives. So we'd been responsible for launching Heat Radio, having worked with the magazine team. So I guess I was an obvious choice to straddle the two businesses. You'd know Barry McElhenney then, one of our I other know Barry podcast McElhenney interviews. very well. He's a legend, of course. A legend, in <laughs> definitely. So I was working in that role, um, and again, not looking to leave, but um, a call came from a headhunter. Um, the headhunter said, have you ever thought about running a music business? And I said, no, don't be ridiculous. Why would I have thought about that? And they persuaded me to read the brief and to think about the challenges that were currently presenting themselves within the music industry and particularly EMI. And I thought, wow, what an opportunity. It was an opportunity for me to learn a bit more about private equity. It was an opportunity for me to learn the other side of the music industry. I'd worked in radio at Capital and at Magic on one side of the fence And it was a great opportunity for for me to learn more. So I thought, and I also probably selfishly thought, EMI was such a basket case at the time. If it all goes wrong, I don't think anyone's going to blame me because so many people were walking out. 
there were so many horrendous headlines. I thought, actually, it, it that wasn't so much. That was of a almost risk. like a safety. Lots of, lots of people thought I was mad yet again, but um, in I went. And what did you do? You're, you're Again, there day one, you roll your sleeves up. I listened. Um, I met two managers. The managers were very, very critical of Guy Hans and Terra Firma's uh, new arrival. Um, two years in, they were still really struggling with the approach from Terra Firma. And I met initially the team, um, had one-to-ones with them. Um, and then I met a couple of managers. And um, I met Tim Clark and David Enthoven, who were looking after Robbie Williams. And they said to me, I'm sure you're going to do very well in the long term, but we're very worried. Robbie Williams' um, album launches very soon after your arrival. And it is currently the last album signed to EMI. And if it fails, it's your name over the door as that album fails. And they gave me a really sort of stark... No pressure then. No, It was a real (laughs) moment of clarity around the holiday I thought I was going to have in between the two uh, careers. Um, And I ditched the holiday and I came into the office and worked like an account manager. I worked on, on the shop floor in the open plan, working and really learning the ropes. And it was, again, the best thing I could have done because mm. I listened and I experienced everything grassroots level up. And um, before everybody else knew I was working, everyone was expecting me to arrive in September. And officially I did arrive in September. <laughs> but I spent two or three weeks before that listening and really beginning to understand what the challenges at EMI were. And again, a lot of them understood the solutions or wanted the opportunity to offer solutions but they were so scared they've been so um, beaten down they were all scared and they were passionate they were so passionate about their artists they Mm -hmm. were so passionate about committed to the music and bringing the music to their fans that they were putting up with everything they could and um, it was really about lifting the spirits and getting people to start talking to one another again what had gone wrong with EMI before you arrived? What were the problems that you needed to fix? Well, the music industry is was in trouble. Um, so that was relevant to everybody. Um, and Guy Hans, Terra Firma had bought EMI, had paid a vast amount of money for it. Indeed. And were looking for a turnaround quickly. And they hadn't communicated or engaged necessarily very well with both their clients, the artists and the managers, or the staff. I'm lucky in that throughout fashion, retailing, um, and then uh, broadcasting, whether it's sport news, um, whether it was um, in uh, commercial radio or at the BBC, I was used to working with creative talent, and creative talent often have egos, and they need to be managed. Of course. And to expect them to behave like businessmen overnight was an expectation that Mm. I think was all people were always going to feel frustrated by. So I treated them like creative talent and talked to them and engaged with them in that way and started to talk to the managers about new ways of growing their artist revenue rather than just relying on singles and album sales. And no music manager is going to walk away from a conversation that doesn't try and engage a broader audience, that doesn't enable them to earn more money. So the operating model changed. We were able to introduce new revenue streams. uh, And it was really by focusing artist by artist 
on who their fan base was and who their potential fan base was and using all the new opportunities. So not thinking just about there's only one route to sales, but thinking about how do we reach, how do we get an album in front of the right audience at the right time? Is it an impulse purchase or is it that actually they have to be really dedicated, loyal fans and therefore they're going to want to buy the poster, the T-shirt. They're going to want to buy a souvenir pack. They're going to want to buy the beautiful mm. vinyl set as well. How you market, how you sell, how you broaden is different for every single artist. And trying to do one size fits all doesn't work. So we reduced the number of artists we were prepared to sign and we really ensured that all of those artists got every single level of attention they could possibly want. So if they fell or tripped at any hurdle, we were there to support them and to provide another route round to ensure that they still got every opportunity. And to what extent were you dependent on each individual artist? Because clearly they're good musicians, singers, artists, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're good communicators or marketers. And nowadays in the kind of social media enabled world, you know, some artists are really active on Twitter. Others would see it as an inconvenience. Did you have to kind of work with each artist with their limitations commercially as well as artistically? Yeah. Katie Tunstall is a brilliant musician. Laura Marling is a brilliant musician. They are completely different to Tiny Temper, completely different to Professor Green, completely different to Coldplay, completely different to Pink Floyd. And you need to recognise the authenticity of an artist and to understand the special, unique elements of that and create something bespoke. So artists are very bright and some of them want to really get into the detail um, and some of them don't. And some of them want to do Twitter themselves and some of them don't. And for some of them, um, thinking about brand exploitation and monetizing their what they wear and the look is as important as it is the album. I mean, One Direction and more money from merchandise than they do from music. Indeed. So tell us, how did you come to leave EMI and join your current post? So, very sadly, from my perspective, EMI um, was turning itself around Operationally, we'd improved our market share quite considerably, improved margins. We were fulfilling what some might have called the terra firma private equity brief, uh, brief and mm. dream. But Citibank took ownership. It was a very complicated capital um, debt structure. Citibank took ownership. Citibank are a bank. Then they're, they're not a music company they're and not. they did not want to hold on to it. We were put up for sale. Universal bought us. Uh, we went through a year of competitive commission review. and That almost sounds as dry as... as, as yeah, <laughs> it was 12 months of very, very uh, difficult challenges with artists desperately wanting to know what the answer would be mm. and not knowing and not being able to tell them. And the solution was that Universal could keep EMI in many global territories, but they couldn't keep EMI in the UK wholeheartedly they could take virgin mm. which they did but the rest of emi uk which was obviously the hq for the whole global group um had to be broken up um you know it was sort of if we can't have it we don't want anybody else to have it whole mm. so parlophone was bought by warners the now brand was bought by sony there were other artist rosters that were bought by uh, bmg and there wasn't a role left for me. So it was broken up and it was sold broken off piece up. By It was piece. very sad, mm, very sad. So um, I was left without another job. 
uh, thinking I was going to get time off and on the beach. And then, before I knew it, Centaur appeared and I was fascinated by the challenge that that presented. It was an opportunity to learn in media again, but an opportunity to learn about a different sector, uh, the B2B professional sector, which I uh, didn't know about. Um, it was a business that I felt was quite unique and which had masses of potential. It had uh, a digital development product team, a real expertise in that area. It had expertise in live events from exhibitions right the way down through conferences, roundtables, festivals. And it had fantastic publishing iconic brands, mm. like you said earlier, Marketing Week, The Lawyer. So I felt it was a lovely size. It could be nimble. It could be agile. It was the underdog, possibly, as some people thought. Quasi-challenger um, brand, maybe. Quasi-challenger <laughs> brand. Um, and I thought, I think I can do something with that. And so that's, that's why I took the role on. And how long have you been there? I've been there 14 months. Oh, right. So what's on your to-do list then for the next few months? Well, the last 12 months has been a massive period of change. It's been changing the business from being 50 in, over 50 independent units working together to consolidating around seven core markets. We've um, successfully done that. We have successfully created new teams that are absolutely clear about what they're doing. We've relaunched websites. We've launched new digital products. And we now have gained some real momentum. We are moving in each market. Um, we're launching new digital data intelligence products, which really help professionals with workflow. So if celebrity intelligence is one you may well be aware of. I am indeed. Indeed. So that makes it really easy for any business that wants to track, work with or uh, endorse, um, study what some uh, celebrities are doing. We we follow 40,000 different celebrities Incredible. continually know letting you know <laughs> what they do, when they do it, why they're doing it, what they're looking to do, what they want to be part of, what they don't want to be part of. And it really enables PR agencies, advertising agencies, media agencies, businesses that are connected with celebrities, whether it be fashion, beauty, um, luxury goods, um, any, and you think about the number of brands that are now using celebrities as ambassadors, of course. Um, to work out which brands, which celebrities most fit their brand opportunity. So launching products like that is definitely part of our future success. We've got a number of big events that we are launching. Again, events definitely part of our success. And I, I guess over the next 12 months, I'm rather hoping Centaur Media will become a famous for some of the new things rather than just the iconic media print brands and their iconic exhibitions. And is that a challenge for you, as you just said, insofar as that people define you by or define the organisation by its past rather than what its future is? It's an easy hook, isn't it? Oh, they do the lawyer, they do, uh, you know, celebrity intelligence, and they're not looking at the next thing. Yeah, but I think that's the case for if you look at BBC, if you look at Magic, if you look at ITV, you are rooted in a past. Um, I like working with legacy brands that need a bit of reinvention and reinvigoration. Um, need energising from the internal first and getting the products really right. I think results do speak louder than any words can. So if you get the products right and you get your audience, your customers, your consumers really being ambassadors for you, 
um, you're on a really strong path to success. So would you describe yourself as a re-energisation specialist? Oh, I've never heard that phrase. That <laughs> it just sounds, popped into my that, head. That sounds very, that sounds great. I might use it in the future. I think anybody coming in, and I would recommend to people starting out in marketing or in media, the benefits of working in different sectors, mm. the benefits I have is that there are a number of similarities about how you approach problems and challenges. Um, and yet you're still learning. Um, so the, the problems that we're facing in Centaur are different and yet similar to some of the problems that I faced at Capital Radio and at EMI and at Magic and at Heat. Um, so understanding your audience, understanding what they want and over-delivering to their expectations, not just meeting market expectations, but over-delivering, really mm. delighting your consumer enables you to build an amazing connection with the brand, between the brand and the consumer. And that gives you momentum, that enables the brand to innovate and to trial things. And it doesn't matter if not everything goes brilliantly. You can trial things now. The brilliance of the digital technology that we have available to us now is you can trial things and if it doesn't work you just move on and try something else and and that's fantastic so don't think you have to be a specialist in any one area try different things well we call this strong media masters and i can't think of anyone who better fits that title really because you've done everything and you've clearly excelled at each aspect of the media i've done everything that is invented now Tomorrow could be completely different. And you may well be running that as well. Andrea, I've learnt a huge amount. Thank you ever so much for your time. Thank you. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!